Uh, last week we started on Matthew 24, and we went through verse 14. And we saw once again how this is different, and the chronology of these questions that were asked in verse 3 were a result of the things that Jesus said to them uh, in Luke 21, when they asked some different questions. And he answered their question in Luke 21, but also talked on other things. And so they answered their questions, uh, and that's why these questions in verse 3 are coming up, because of what he said they, they didn't ask for, the information they did not ask for. And we saw that uh, verses uh, uh, 5 through uh, 10 were a snapshot of what we see in the seals, the first four seals in Revelation. And... Uh, and we saw that in verse 13, that he that endures to the end shall be saved. And that the preaching of the gospel must go to all nations before the end will come. Okay, today we're going to go from verse 15 to verse 28. Let's go ahead and start reading. It says in verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down and take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation. This has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for elect's sake, those days will be shortened. If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore they say to you, look, he is in a desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. So in verse 15, we see Jesus talking about the abomination of desolation. He says that it's something that they will see. And of course, once again, we've, we've seen that starting uh, back in verse 4, he's not necessarily talking about the disciples he's talking to right now seeing these things themselves. Because we saw that this is talking about a future thing, something that they're not going to be around for. They're long gone. But it's a warning for future disciples, possibly for us, to not uh, to be aware of these things and to, that this is something that you will see with your eyes. Okay, So when this is seen, the abomination of desolation is seen, then we are to take action and flee. Now, what is the abomination of desolation? Now, the word abomination... Uh, from the Greek word, means something disgusting that arouses wrath. Uh, you know, you see in the Old Testament, the worst of sins were considered an abomination in God's eyes, like homosexuality is considered an abomination in God's eyes. And so these are things that are just really disgusting, abhorrent, like a stench in your nostrils, something that makes you want to puke, basically. Okay? So it's an, something that's an abomination, something that's disgusting, that arouses wrath. And desolation doesn't necessarily mean destruction or destroyed or obliterated. Desolation means uninhabitable. Okay? What I want you to picture in your mind when you think about desolation is, you know, an old western town that's no longer inhabited. The little dust bunnies run through it. You know, it's no longer, it used to be inhabited, 
but now it no longer is inhabited. It's like a ghost town, so to speak. Okay? So abomination desolation is something that's disgusting to God happens, that arouses his wrath, and the place where this happens becomes uninhabited. Okay? Uh, it says, spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. So Jesus doesn't really give very much details about this, does he? He just kind of names this place, this thing that happens, abomination desolation. And he mentions Daniel speaking about it. And he says, uh, it says, standing in the holy place, which the holy place is the holy of holies, which is where the temple is. He says, whoever reads, let him understand. Now, he says, whoever reads, let him understand. Is he talking about us reading Matthew? No, he's talking about reading Daniel. That's what he's referring to. And so let's go back to Daniel. And let's, because Jesus doesn't really give very many details about what this looks like. Okay, so let's go to Daniel and see if he gives more details here. Uh, we're going to look in Daniel chapter 8 first. Chapter 8, uh, verses 11 and 12. Now, Daniel talks about the abomination of desolation. He doesn't always name it that way, but he talks about it four different times. Okay, uh, Two times are talking about future occurrences. That's Daniel 9.27 and Daniel 12.11. And then you see two occurrences, Daniel 11, 29, 39, which we'll get to here in a second, and then Daniel 8. Um, so let's read just Daniel 8, 11, and 12. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn, and to oppose the daily sacrifices... And he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. So we see here, it's not called the abomination desolation here, but we'll see here in a second, it's talking about the same thing. Daily sacrifices are taken away. So the Jewish sacrifices that they were offering daily are now not able to be done properly the way they're supposed to be done. And so we see here, the daily sacrifices are taken away. Now I'm proposing to you, this is talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, which is about 168 B.C. Okay? So that happened long ago. But this is Daniel. Daniel was writing this about 500 years before Christ. Okay? And therefore about 300 years before Antiochus Epiphanes comes through and does this very thing. Okay? And some people who are secular historians or even liberal theologians will say that there's no way Daniel could have written these things he writes in Daniel before these things actually happened because they're so accurate to the T of what actually happened over 300 years later. Okay, so that's one example in Daniel 8. That's, like I said, that's a past tense thing. Something that uh, happened when Jesus is talking to disciples is something that happened had already happened. Okay, so the, the disciples have something to build upon. When he says abomination of desolation, they have something to build upon in their head as to what exactly Jesus is talking about and what to look for. Okay, and he points them back to Daniel from the sea. Let's go to Daniel 11. Sure, go ahead. They're looking back about 200 years. Well, it's going to go beyond that, because they have a holiday they celebrate about this, and I'll get to that here in a minute. But there's other things that help them remember these things as a history thing for them, okay? Uh, and then Daniel chapter 11, 
which once again is talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, and I'll get more into him here in a minute and give you a little history of him. Uh, let's just look at verse 31. And forces shall be mustered by him, talking about this Antiochus Epiphanes, okay? And they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. So something is being placed in the temple where the daily sacrifices are taking place. Something is put there in its place and daily sacrifices are taken away. Now this, we read Daniel now, but we're still not getting too much information. I mean, we're getting enough, I think, to, to understand what he's talking about. But let me give you some history regarding Hanukkah. We've all heard of Hanukkah, right? And Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes, and uh, Hanukkah. Just to give you a little thing on that, real quick, you know, it became popular as a holiday, as a holy day, uh, really more due to Jewish people being in nations where Christmas is celebrated the way it is. Okay, Christmas is December twenty fifth. None of us in here celebrate the way the world celebrates it, if we celebrate it at all. But um, you know, Jewish people, as they were in these nations where December 25th was being celebrate, celebrated as Christ's birth, they were kind of feeling left out because they don't celebrate Christ's birth. Okay, They had no reason to. They don't think he's the Messiah. Um, and so uh, Hanukkah, which I'm about to give you the story about, uh, happened, the rededication of the temple happened on 25th of Kislev, which is the, a Jewish month. And it can happen different times in the Gregorian calendar, calendar we go by. It can happen anywhere from the end of November to the end of December. So it kind of falls in the same point area where, you know, Christmas is celebrated. And so it became a more popular holy day, even though it's not told to be celebrated in the scriptures, it became a more popular holy day because of that reason, I believe. Okay? So Antioch's Epiphanes, um, he was, uh, well, let me just give you a history of what happened during that time. You know, everybody knows that Alexander the Great went sweeping through the known world at a time, conquering everything. No one was able to stop him. He died and, and had no heir. So he left his kingdom to four generals. And eventually that kingdom became broken up. And there was a kingdom called the uh, Ptolemaic Kingdom, which is basically to the south of Israel. It included Egypt, Ethiopia, the northern, uh, northeastern part of Africa, and included somewhere up into the Palestine. And Israel was under this kingdom, okay, until 200 B.C. Okay, Israel was under this kingdom this kingdom from this king from the south, which Daniel 11 talks about. Now, Antiochus III, the third, he defeated King Ptolemy V at a battle. And because of that defeat, Israel now became a part of the Seleucid kingdom, which Antiochus III was a ruler over. It included Syria, part of Turkey, and uh, out into where modern-day Iraq and modern-day Iran is. Okay, That was the Seleucid, Seleucid kingdom, empire. And so Antiochus III allowed, after he conquered, after he beat the uh, Ptolemaic kingdom in a battle, he took control of Israel, but he allowed the Jews to worship God the same way they always did. He allowed them to, to engage in their Jewish religion the same way they always have. But his son, Antiochus IV, wasn't the same way. Uh, he was a very vile man, a very wicked man. In fact, his nickname was a Hebrew word that means wicked. That, that was his nickname. Okay? Um, so he wasn't the same way. And there was there was some infighting between the Jewish people, two different groups. We had the, the, the priests on one side who were for the Jewish religion and who were for not becoming Greek and Hellenized. There's another group saying, yes, we need to become Hellenized. And eventually, 
the priests kicked that first group out of Israel. And who did they go running to? Antiochus IV. They went running to him. And so he had just, at this point in time, he had just lost a battle in Egypt. So he's pretty upset, pretty furious at this point in time. So he came back to Israel. And when he came back to Israel, um, you can, and in fact, you can see if you want to look it up for yourself, read through Daniel 11 for yourself. You'll see in verses 29 and 30 that he was upset about this. He was furious about his, his defeat in Egypt. And he came back to Israel. When he came back to Israel, the temple was looted. Things were stolen from it. The daily sacrifices were put to a stop and were outlawed. Uh, he banned circumcision, which is a sign that you're a Jew, and the possession of the Jewish holy books. And if you did those things, you did them under penalty of death. Okay. Uh, and then he erected a statue of Zeus in the temple and commanded the sacrifice of pigs and worship of Zeus. Now, we know that the Jews consider pigs unclean animals. They would never use them as a sacrifice to God. Uh, and some Jews actually went along with this, uh, they, for you know, fear of their own life, of course. But some rebelled, and they were led by a priest named Mattathias and his five sons. Uh, and he was co-led by his son Judah. This is called the Maccabean Revolt. And through a series of battles, the Maccabeans won and regained control over Jerusalem and the temple. Uh, and after they re- regained control of the temple, they had to rededicate it. All the swine was offered there. The statue of Zeus was there. And uh, one of the parts of, of, of the temple is having the menorah lit at all times. The menorah, you've probably seen it, is a completely golden candelabra. Okay, has one going straight up and then three branches coming off each side. So a total of seven. Okay? And it was always to be lit. Now, once they con- once they got control of the temple back, there was no uh, pure olive oil left because that's what this candle ran on. It didn't run on wax and a little wick at the top and lighting it. It ran on olive oil, and there was none left. There was only a, only enough left to run for one day because all the rest of the olive oil had become defiled by the Greeks and their religious pagan religious practices. And so they decided to light the the uh, menorah anyway. And uh, they only had, like I said, only had enough oil to light it and keep it lit for one day. And the problem with this is this. It takes eight days to to make some more olive oil that's fit to keep the menorah lit. And so they lit it, and it kept lit for eight days. Or so the story goes, anyway. I mean, this isn't something that's written in Scripture, but this is how the Jewish, Jewish, Jewish people tell it. And this is where this holiday, Hanukkah, came from. The word Hanukkah means dedication. This is where it came from. And that's why when you see the Hanukkah, which is the candelabra for Hanukkah, you see one going up the middle with eight, four on each side going off to the side. Because the eight symbolized the eight days that the candle stayed lit while they're preparing fresh olive oil to light the menorah in the temple. Okay, And of course, when you look at the, uh, at the um, Hanukkah, you see the one in the middle is either, either higher or lower than the ones on the side, and it's also used to light the ones on the side. Okay, so this is where this, hol- this holy day Hanukkah uh, came from, or it's also called Chanukkah. That's where it came from. Okay, so they rededicated the temple, uh, took it back over, and Hanukkah has since become uh, more popular uh, because of, I believe, uh, it's not it's not as as important as Rosh Hashanah. Uh, Pentecost, the Day of Atonement. It's not as popular, not as important as, it's not written about in the scriptures. Okay? 
if you were to add Maccabees, first and second Maccabees to, to the Bible, then it might become a little more important, but it's not even really mentioned in there. Okay? Very sparsely. And the Jews don't consider the Maccabees to be scripture. Okay? So, they only consider it to be history. So it's, but it's become a more popular holiday, I think, because of the influence of the Christ, the, the pagan celebration of, of Christmas. You know, uh, so people don't want to, in fact, even now you'll see Jewish children are given a, a gift on every day of Hanukkah. You know, the eight days. They're given gifts during those days. You know, even though that wasn't part of the original thing. It wasn't part of it. So, anyway, this is what the, the, when Jesus is speaking to the disciples here, these are the things they have to go by. As good Jews, they celebrated the Festival of Lights. They celebrated Hanukkah. They celebrated the defeat of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and the Syrian government over top of them, uh, the Seleucid government. So they so they knew these things. They knew what to look for. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that the, when this abomination necessarily happens in the future, that it's going to happen the same exact way. It doesn't mean that there's going to be a, uh, an erection of Zeus in the temple. But what it does mean is this, is that the daily sacrifices will be stopped and sacrifices will be compelled to be offered to someone else as if that person or that statue were God. That's what it means. Okay? And so when someone stands in the temple and proclaims these things, that's when you know it's time to flee. Let's look at 2 Thessalonians 2 for a second. And Paul says something very similar here. Second Thessalonians chapter two, starting in uh, verse four. Well, let's actually start in verse three. No one deceived by any means for that day, the resurrection. That's what he's talking about in verse one and two. Will not come unless the falling away comes first, and this is the part I want to focus on here: the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Once again, talking about the abomination of desolation. And so, the abomination of desolation, the, the man of sin, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So he's not just going to, he wants to be the God of gods. Not just over, you know, we know there's only one true God, we know that. But not just over the God of Christianity, but over the God of Hinduism, over the God of Buddhism. He's going to be the, he wants to be the God over all gods. He wants to be worshipped as God in the temple of God. Okay? And uh, we won't get too much more into who that is, but it's obviously the Antichrist. Okay? Satan in someone's flesh as the son of perdition, the son of destruction. Okay, so we see that when we see these things happening, um, we are to understand that then, verse 16, at that time, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, Judea is obviously mentioned first because that's ground zero. That's ground zero of the abomination of desolation. So where's, where do you think the Antichrist is going to start to persecute those who belong to God? Right where he is. Now, keep in mind, we're, we're not talking about the, you know, first century war situation, we're talking about a 21st century or later war situation. 
And so we're, he's not he's not you know confined to no newspapers, no internet access, you know, no satellite access, all these things. He has this Antichrist will have access to all these things, but still, ground zero of this persecution will happen in Judea, and they are to flee to the mountains, which sounds very similar to what happened in Luke twenty one. Now, whether they'll go to Pella again or not, I have no idea. But let's read on to verse 17. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Now, what he's trying to tell you here is you're not to go back and get anything. And in Luke 17, let's go there for a second, we're told to remember something. And let's start in uh, verse 23, so we can get some context here. And they will say to you, look here, look there, do not go after them or follow them. Talking about look for the Christ. For as lightning that flashed at one part of the heaven shines to the other part of the heaven, so also be the Son of Man will be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. Talking about his return, right before his return. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until a day that Noah entered the ark and flood came and destroyed them all. So Noah, he was out there. He's a preacher of righteousness, according to, to Peter. I think that's where it's in Peter, I think, or in Jude. He He's a preacher of righteousness, and he preached, and everyone just went about their things as if nothing was going to happen. And then it happened, all of a sudden. And they ate, they drank, and were given a marriage. Likewise, it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven, destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when it, when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day he was on the housetop, let it, and his goods are in the house. Let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, will let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. She turned back. You see, he's given the same things here. They we're just reading in, in Matthew 24, verse 17 and 18. He's saying the same things here in verse 31. He, he was on the housetop, and his goods are in the house. Let him not come down and take them away. Because what you're going to think is, well, I need to provide for myself. I need to take care of myself. I have no food. I, all I have is a clothes on my back. You're going to think, I have to go back and get my uh, computer. I have to go back and get my smartphone. I can't live without those things. I have to go back and, and get, uh, you know, whatever else it may be. My, my cars for you children or my dollies, whatever it may be. I have to go back and get these things that I treasure. No. Remember Lot's wife. All she did was look back and what happened? Pillar of salt. Remember Lot's wife. If you turn back, if you look back, if you turn back and you ask the good things, you'll be, it'll be too late for you. You'll miss the boat. As it happened in Noah's day. You'll miss the boat. Don't miss the boat. Remember Lot's wife. When you see these things happen, don't procrastinate. Don't think I have plenty of time. Remember Lot's wife. Flee. Get out. Go away to where God will lead you. And the question becomes, <clears throat> with verse uh, 16, it says those in Judea. Is it only talking about those in Judea? That's a good question question I pondered quite a bit. Let's go to Luke 21 for a second. I want I just want you to compare, just to help us possibly understand this talking about just those in Judea. 
Because we know what Luke 21, which is talking about AD 70, is just talking about those in Judea. It's only talking about them. Because it's talking about AD 70. So let's see what it says there, and let's compare what it says here about what they should do to what it says there. Then let those who are Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and not those who are in the country enter her. Talking about uh, Jerusalem, Judea. Okay? So, we see a difference here. I, I think, this is just what I think now, I don't know for sure, that verse 17 and 18 are talking about all believers worldwide. Okay? I don't think it's just talking about those in Judea. All right? So you can see a difference here in what he's saying. He's, verse 17 and 18, isn't just, he's not just using language that's limiting himself to Judea. It seems like he's expanding his language from verse 16 and expanding it to all people worldwide. Okay, so mm-hmm. no, no, Matthew twenty-four, verse sixteen and seventeen. Verse twenty-one, verse twenty-one. Luke twenty-one and verse twenty-one. Let those from Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are not in the midst of her depart. And let not let not those who are in the country enter her. All referring back to Judea and Jerusalem, where these things are happening. Okay, but I think in verses 17 and 18 of Matthew 24, they go beyond what verse 16 is saying here, where it talks about Judea. I don't think verse 17 and 18 are limiting it just to Judea. Okay, now if we were to go just for a second to Revelation, something else talked about here. I'm going to go into too much depth on this because we'll talk about this quite a bit more when we get to Revelation after Matthew. And according to my calculations, I probably should be finished with Matthew by the middle of October. But we'll see what happens. Okay, we see in uh, Revelation chapter 12, in verse 6. It says, Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Okay, the question is who the woman is. I suppose that the woman is uh, the church, those who are in Christ, the elect, the faithful people. Okay, just like uh, to be Abraham's seed, you have to be in Christ, you're part of the faithful Abraham's seed. Now, at this point in time, the woman, up in verse uh, 1 and 2, is talking about Sarah, but I think that extends to those who are Sarah's children as well, because Sarah didn't go into the wilderness to be to flee for one thousand two hundred sixty days. Okay, and let's go to go to Revelation twelve and verse thirteen. And you can study Revelation twelve a little more in your own time, and of course, verse thir- chapter thirteen as well. It's all talking about this, I believe. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, the dragon is Satan. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And so once again, I'm telling you, I think that's not just, that's not Sarah there. That's the people of the promise, the people who belong. They're Sarah's children. It's like they're Abraham's children. They're children of the promise. You go to Galatians 3 for more of that. You can see they're people of the promise. And so that's the woman who the woman's talking about. Now listen to what they do. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time, which is three and a half years, which is 1,260 days on the Jewish calendar, from the presence of the serpent, Satan, the Antichrist. 
So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, and it may cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened his mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now here the question becomes, is this woman just referring to the children of the promise who are in the Judea region when the abomination of desolation occurs? If it is, which I don't think it is, if it is, then the rest of the offspring who are persecuted by the Antichrist are the rest of the Christians worldwide. Okay, And we can see in verse 7, Revelation 13, it says that it was granted to him, the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so, I'm not quite sure yet. I may come to a more solid conclusion later on on this. Uh, and I do believe the woman there in Revelation 12 is referring to uh, the woman's offspring, Sarah's offspring, Sarah's children, Abraham's seed, who are the elect, who are in Christ. I do think it's referring to all of them. Um, and so I, I think 17 and 18 are applying to all Christians worldwide. Now, where are we going to flee to? I don't think we're going to go to the Middle East and go to where the Christians over there are going to. Uh, but God's got plenty of places worldwide to hide us. Uh, God is not uh, you know, limited to <clears throat> the wilderness of Judea to hide his elect. He can hide us wherever he wants to. And he can, yeah, he can hide us in the hills of Kentucky. Um, if, if they began to search, like just take the Appalachian region, <clears throat> where there's Virginia, West Virginia, Eastern Kentucky, Western North Carolina, Eastern Tennessee, it'd take you a long time to find someone in there, like a needle in a haystack, to put it in layman's terms. Okay. places to hide <clears throat> and uh, of course at this time if God's leading us into hiding we're not relying on earthly wisdom to find a good cave or something we're relying on God's wisdom to find the right place okay uh, so I don't know where we're going to go but I, I think we're going to go I think we're going to hide and one more thing I'll, I'll bring up here is in Revelation eleven eight. <clears throat> It says this. Now, this is this is at the end of the first three and a half years, which is when the Antichrist does the abomination and desolation, because the two witnesses are getting killed now by the Antichrist. And uh, we see in verse 8, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of that great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. That's Jerusalem. Okay? That's where Jesus was crucified. But it's interesting that it's called Sodom and Egypt spiritually, because where did Lot and his wife flee from? Where did the Israelites flee from? Egypt, right? The children of the children of God fled from Sodom and Gomorrah, and they fled from Egypt, and God brought them out of there. And God led Lot into the wilderness for a while, and God led the Israelites into the wilderness for a while. And God is going to take those who are in Jerusalem and lead them out of there for a time. 
times in half a time. Okay? And so, and if you go, let's go to Exodus 19, uh, 19 for a second. You'll see the language being used here. Exodus 19. And verse 14, you'll see the language being used here. Very interesting. I'm sorry, 19 and verse 4, not 14, verse 4. And this is God telling Moses what to say to the Israelites. He says this, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's exactly what it says in Revelation 12. And what, are they, what does the Antichrist do in Revelation 12? It says about him that he sent a flood, spewed some water, like a flood. Now, a flood is it's, it's probably a military, okay? But what did Pharaoh do when, the, when the, the, the Israelites tried to escape? He sent the army after him. And what happened to him? They were swallowed up by what? Red Sea. And what's going to happen to these people? They're going to be swallowed up by the earth. Lots of similarities here. Lots of comparisons to make, okay? And so... We're going to be escaping, and, and at, at this point in time, just about everywhere is going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? Everywhere. And so we're going to be fleeing, and God will protect, just like he's protected his people in the past when they fled uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, just like he protected them in the past when they fled Egypt. Uh, he will protect his people when they flee this time, as long as they obey his word. They go where he tells them to go. Go ahead. I didn't really specify that. They did specify that they would be out of Judea, so we don't know, if, you know, if it, where it's going to be exactly. Yeah, well, so it's not going to be in Judea, I guess. Is that what it's saying? Well, in, in verse in verse sixteen, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So, mountains. yeah, so that's where they're they'll, they'll flee to the mountains. Okay. Yeah, and. Um, I'm not so sure we know the exact spot just yet. I'm still studying that out. I'm still looking at a lot of Old Testament scriptures and, and looking at a possible area where they might flee. Um, but I don't think we know just yet. And uh, if we are to flee too, those who are not in Judea are to flee, according to verse 17 and 18, then God will tell us at that time where to flee. And it makes sense, because if we knew now where to flee, what would we do? We should go there now. We set up the running water, we set up uh, the electricity, we get the cable internet going, you know, all those things would be happening. And so God's like, a, he, he knows how we work, he knows we'll prepare ahead of time, so he's not going to tell us now. It's not biblical if they're trying to prepare for the last three and a half years. Now, if you're just trying to prepare for some kind of famine, I mean, Joseph prepared for famine, and God let him to do that. It was a blessing to all the people in the area. And so there's nothing wrong with preparing for famine. If you're, if you're trying to prepare for the last three and a half years, yes, you're wrong, because all the stuff you're preparing and putting aside, you're gonna go, it's going to be gone. You, if you turn back like Lot, Lot's wife did, you're going to be gone with them. And so you don't turn back for your stuff. And you're, you you don't know where to hide the stuff. You're hiding where your property is now. You're going to leave it anyway. So you're wasting your money. You're wasting God's money. You should use that money to further the gospel instead. You know? There's nothing wrong with preparing for your family, preparing for family. If we, if we knew a family was coming before this ever happened, there'd be nothing wrong with preparing for that. Nothing wrong at all. But if, if their idea is to prepare for the last three and a half years, then they're, they're, they're deceived. They're, they're being like Lot's wife. Because they're going to turn back and then the flood of the armies are going to come, and they're going to be killed by the sword. 
So. Killed by the Antichrist. Yeah. Oh, he'll reveal it to us. I mean, he's. We're seeking the Lord. We're we're looking for the signs. We're being watching and praying. Therefore, like he tells us to, uh, we'll, we'll know. We seem to trust him, and he'll lead us and guide us, and to obey wherever he tells us to go. Yeah. Yeah, and it's encouraging that we know that. God doesn't have to take his people out of the world completely in order to protect them and provide for them and have a safe place for them. Okay, that, that's one of the arguments of the pre-trib rapture people is that, you know, we will not endure wrath. Well, I, I agree we're not going to endure God's wrath. Uh, some, of us were, some of us will endure Satan's wrath and Christ's wrath. Uh, but God can protect us and, prepare, and provide for us and prepare a place for us without taking us out of this world. This, this world belongs to him. Okay? It belongs to him. And someday he will rule from this world. So, I believe at this point, I don't think it's completely 100% on this. I believe everyone will be fleeing. Now, verse 19. Uh, well unto those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. Now, practically speaking, unless you're Michelle Duggar with that thing around your waist where she feeds her baby while she's walking around... Uh, even then, she probably couldn't run with that thing on. Um, you're going to have a hard time uh, running with little children, with babies. Okay, You're going to have a hard time nursing. Not only because you're on the run, you're going to have a hard time nursing, but because if a woman lacks food herself, she has no food to give the baby she's nursing. And so it's going to be... And, and babies who are nursing, they don't have teeth. They can't chew up hard food. Okay? So uh, for practical purposes... We see why Jesus would say this. Woe to those who are pregnant, those who are nursing babies in those days. Okay? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 7 for a second. Is he actually saying that... He's not actually saying that you shouldn't have children. He's saying what? No, I think he possibly is saying that. It could be, but it could be saying that it's going to be hard for you. Well, well into those. You could probably plant... If you know ahead... If you kind of knew that these times are coming, you could probably... Right. 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 Yeah, I think First Corinthians seven, Paul expands on this a little bit. Let's go to verse uh, twenty-five. Now he's going to talk about the unmarried here. Uh, now concerning virgins, those are those who are not married. I have no commandment from the Lord. It's those who have never been married, obviously. I have no commandment from the Lord. And what he's saying there when I say I have no command from the Lord, he's not saying that what he's about to say is not authoritative. He's saying that Jesus didn't speak about this very topic, okay, in detail as he's about to. Yet I give judgment as one who, who the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. So he's talking about those who are unmarried first. He says because of present distress, it's good for him to remain as he is. Okay? So because of distress, he's saying it'd probably be better if you'd not marry at all. He said, verse 27, are you bound to a life? Do not seek to be loose. So if you're married, don't seek to be... He's not saying that you should go and try to be single now if you're married. Are you loose from a wife? Whether it's separated or biblically divorced or, or whether you're a virgin, do not seek a wife, he says. But then he says, but even if you do marry, you have not sinned. If a virgin marries, she has not sinned. 
Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh that I would spare you. And so he's saying, whether it's a virgin, someone who's never married, someone who's uh, lost their spouse through death, someone who's been biblically separated, divorced from their spouse, he's saying, it's better for you to remain as you are because of distress. Now, this wouldn't apply to us at this point in time because we don't have much distress right now. Okay, They went through a lot of distress. But there's going to be distress in the last days. Great distress. We'll see how bad it's going to be when we get back to Matthew 24 here in a second. But he's saying, I would save you trouble in the flesh. That would spare you. He's saying, but if you choose to, if you choose to marry, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying you've sinned. Even in distress, if you choose to marry, I'm not saying that you have sinned. But nevertheless, I would spare you this trouble. And in verse 29 it says, But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Now what does that mean? Well, typically, if you have a wife, you're going to have children. Typically. And so he's saying, and I think this is referring back to what Jesus said, that, that there's a um, uh, giving to prayer and fasting, which if you go to, let's go, just go to the verse uh, 5 for a second here, First uh, Corinthians 7. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time. And this is this is for husbands and wives here. You don't deprive yourself intimately, but for a time. And with mutual consent, not one party consent, mutual consent, that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer. So if verse 29 is saying what I think it's saying, to act as if you were not married, to treat your wife like she's just your sister in Christ, to treat your husband like he's just your brother in Christ, and no longer have children, it must be because you're giving yourself to fasting and prayer and there's mutual consent. And he's saying this because the time is short and he would save you trouble in the flesh. Okay? Uh, verse 30, Those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as they did not rejoice, those who buy as they did not possess, why shouldn't you act as if you possess? Because you're going to leave it all. You're going to leave it all behind. And those who use this world as though not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He's going to expand this more. For he who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. Only. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, not in a sinful sense, how he may please his wife. That's what you're supposed to do if you're a husband. You're supposed to think about how you're going to please your wife, but loving her as Christ loved the church and serving her and teaching her and training her and the things of the Lord. But he was married about things of the world, how he may please his wife. But not only the wife now, he doesn't expand upon this, but it's assumed. Because if you're if you're married, it's assumed that you're going to have children. There's a difference between the wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the, of the Lord, that she may be holy, both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, that I may not put a leash on you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. That's the key here. That's what he's trying to say here. That he would like for everyone to serve the Lord without distraction. And let's be honest. It's not a sinful distraction, but having a wife, having a husband, having a ch- having children is a distraction in this sense. It does take time away. Single men and single women, they'll have greater... Uh, accountability for the way they use their time. Because they don't have a wife or a husband or children to take care of and to be concerned about. When I was single, I had a lot more time. A lot more time. And I love my wife and children. Wouldn't give up for singleness in a second. 
But I had a lot more time. A lot more time to pray. A lot more time to, to read the Word of God, study the Word of God. And things take up time. Do they not? Things take up time. Homeschooling takes up time. Training your children takes up time. Spending time with your wife takes up time. Providing for your family takes up time. All these things take time. And so if Paul is trying to say, listen, if you choose to, I just want you to have the full truth here. If you choose to get married and have children, that's fine. You haven't sinned. But I would have you, I would save you some trouble. I would spare you some trouble in the flesh. Okay? So these are things for, for us to consider whether you're married or not. If you're not married, you're not to assume because your parents are married that you're to get married. And if you are married, you're not to assume that you're to continue having as many children as you want. Now, I know in this fellowship, we have some big families. I plan on continuing to have children, unless the Lord leaves me otherwise. And me and Brother Levon even talked about this recently. So I want to talk about this, this be fruitful and multiply. Okay, It's spoken to two different groups of people. Okay, Genesis 1.28, it's spoken to Adam and Eve. Okay, In Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1, and again in verse 7 of Genesis 9, it's spoken to Noah and his family. And why do you think that is? The earth is empty. The earth is empty. Now, the Lord can speak to you to be fruitful and multiply, and there's no problem with that. But for us to oppose that upon every person out there who claims to be a Christian, say, well, if you're not having many children as you can, you're in sin. That's not biblical. Okay, you've spoken two times to different people, and I think the reason, even though it doesn't say, the reason why you should be fruitful and multiply is because the earth is empty. I'm assuming because the only people you ever spoke it to, and because of what we see here in 1 Corinthians 9, because of what we see in Matthew 24 and Matthew 19, that not, because if, if, let's be honest, if God wants everyone to be fruitful and multiply, then he wants everyone to be married. Right? That's the only way you can be fruitful and multiply, biblically speaking, unless you're going to be a fornicator and go to hell for it. So if God wants everyone to be fruitful and multiply, everyone must get married. But we know from Matthew 19 that he's given some the gift of celibacy. And we know from 1 Corinthians 9 that Paul was celibate, so if he's not being fruitful and multiplying, then he's disobeying God and he's an, an apostle on his way to hell. So not everyone is called to be fruitful and multiply. Now the question is, is everyone who's married called to be fruitful and multiply? Well, I'll say this. I would use 1 Corinthians 7, we see here. I would go to Matthew 24. And I would say this. If someone's not having children by using a abortuary uh, type of... Uh, birth control, then they're in sin. And what I mean by abortuary for, for the children is that there's birth control that causes, after the baby has been conceived, causes the, the woman's body to abort the baby. Okay? It's a form of birth control. If they're using that, they're in sin. If they're saying, well, I don't want to have children because, uh, you know, I don't have enough money for it, or I don't have enough space for it, or, you know, um, uh, I, I'm a woman, I want my own career, I, I want a job. You know, I, I want to, I, I, me, 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 me. If, if that's the reason why they're not having children, then they're in sin. Flat out. And so we have, I think we have these these things to work around, these, uh, these boundaries to work around, but I don't want to say that if everyone is not having as many children as they can, that they're in sin. Because yeah, the Bible doesn't say that. Okay? Now for me, uh, unless the Lord leaves me otherwise, I see no reason to stop trying to have children. I could do it. But I see no reason to do that. And I don't think that's the way God's leading me. But it's for you and your house, you and your husband, and you and your wife need to be convinced of what your position will be. Okay? And if someone comes along and says, well, I, I don't think God's called me. I mean, I, I, me and Angel know a couple back in Louisiana who used to know that they were pre-trib 
were they preaching about it? Or they were poster? I think they were poster, actually. That's one of the reasons why. They actually said the Lord has led us not to have any children because of these things. And it's not my thought, but they're, they're kind of crazy. They don't know what they're talking about. Uh, but I can see the wisdom of that now because we see in 1 Corinthians 7, we see in Matthew 24, these things being taught here, these principles being taught. Um, and so, if someone is saying children are inconvenient, they're too much trouble, they don't have the money for them, don't have enough space for them, I want a career, me, 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 then I'm going to say, listen, there's something wrong. You're being selfish. And if you raise your children properly, they're a blessing. They're a heritage from the Lord. Yeah. That's one of the reasons. Like I said, it's one of the reasons for marriage. It's for godly offspring. That's one of the reasons. And so, but we, we can't impose this rule upon someone that's not explicitly found in the scripture. Okay? Uh, so we see for this pregnant and nursing thing, there's practical reasons why, and I think there's other reasons why that uh, we see in 1 Corinthians 7. And it says in verse 20, uh, I pray that your flight may not be in winter on the Sabbath. Um, well, why would you not want to flee to mountains in the winter? Cold. Cold, dangerous. I mean, who wants to flee in cold weather? Especially when all you have is the clothes on your back. I mean, I'd rather sweat and get hot than freeze with not enough clothes. Right? And, but for somebody, as Brother Tracy pointed out last week, I think, someone in this world is going to flee in winter. Because at all points in time, there's some place on this earth that has winter and some place that has summer. Unless it's going to be spring and fall. Then there's, then there's a possibility someone might not flee in the winter, I guess. Because it, when we have the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere, it's always opposite. Okay? If we're in spring... Southern Hemisphere is in fall. If we're in summer, they're in winter, and vice versa. Okay? So someone, well, I guess not, there's not a guarantee someone will flee in winter, but we ought to pray that we won't flee in winter, that we don't have to flee in winter, that we're in a place where we won't have to flee in winter. Or on the Sabbath. Now, is Jesus saying here that, oh, you know, you can only go so far on the Sabbath. If you go further than that, you're going to be sitting on the Sabbath. That's why you should pray. You're not fleeing on the Sabbath. No, I don't think so. Because if you go to, to Matthew chapter 12 for a second, we talked about this. Uh, there's reasons, there's godly reasons to break the Sabbath even from the Jewish perspective. And we see in Matthew 12 that the disciples are plucking heads of grain. And what did the Pharisees come along and say? Look! They're doing what's unlawful. They're working on the Sabbath. And Jesus, well, well haven't you read that, that David came in and ate the showbread? That he was unlawful for him to eat because he was hungry? And so Jesus said David didn't sin. He, Because he was hungry, he was allowed to eat the show because love, love, the law of love conquers all laws. And the law of love takes precedence over their law of the Sabbath. Not only that, but the, the priests, they work on the Sabbath. So they profane the Sabbath by working on the Sabbath. And who are they trying to correct here in Matthew 12? They're trying to correct the Lord of the Sabbath. And he goes on to heal and, and heal someone on the Sabbath in verses 9 through 12. He heals someone. He says to them, which of you, if his sheep had not fallen to a pit on the Sabbath, would not lay hold of it and get it out? But that would, that would be considered work. And so Jesus is not saying here in, in Matthew 24 that you can't, you can't go a certain, you're going to be breaking the Sabbath. He's saying, I think practically speaking, think about it. On the Sabbath, a lot of places are closed. Okay, a lot of, Especially in that area of the world, Judea, a lot of the places are closed. Because even if you're not a religious Jew... You're just a genealogical Jew. Just like here in America, it used to be on Sunday. You couldn't find a business that was open. In Judea, you probably can't find a business that's open on Saturday, the Sabbath. So it's going to make it difficult to flee. Okay? Lots of things will be closed. 
Okay, verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation that has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Now, we've, we've read about different people who have been persecuted in this fellowship. I've read to you from biographies. We've talked about Richard Wormbrand. But you need to understand that what they went through will be nothing compared to what is coming. Nothing. Because now we don't have just wicked men persecuting the church. We have the Antichrist, devil in the flesh, basically, devil incarnate, basically, persecuting the church and the saints. Because he's been cast down to the earth. Worldwide. Worldwide. It's not just going to be locally like the communist or just certain countries. It's going to be worldwide. It's going to be worst persecution ever. And so we we read these stories of persecution. We need to keep that in mind that uh, these things are going to happen. And so this is talking about the last three and a half years, of course, uh, after the abomination of desolation happens. And in verse 22, unless those days were shortened, there'd be no Christians left. They'd all be killed. They'd all be slaughtered. And so for elect's sake, Christ, God, shortened those days. And in verse 23, it says, If anyone says to you, look, see, we're in hiding now. People are going to try to get us to come out of hiding. And what do you think they'll say to get us out of hiding? Hey, Christ is here. Come out and see him. Hey, this, this prophet over here, he's doing lots of miracles, signs, and wonders. He must be a true prophet. Come see him. That's what we see here in verse 23. If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Let's go to Revelation 13 for a second. And we'll see the false Elijah, what it says about him, this false prophet, this beast. No. No, the false Elijah is not the Antichrist. The false Elijah is the false prophet. Two different people. The false prophet, the false Elijah, points to the Antichrist and tells people to worship him. And the image is set up. Revelation 13, verse 11, Then I saw another beast, a different beast than what's talking about in verse 1, coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast in his presence and caused the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs, so that he, may, he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of man. Who did that in the Bible? Elijah. Elijah. This is the false Elijah. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. And so the false prophet, the false Elijah, will come and point to the false Messiah, because the true Elijah according to Malachi 4, points to the true Messiah. Okay, So he's going to come in the likeness of Elijah, perform many signs and wonders, and there'll be other false Christs and false prophets, according to verse 24, a plural there, who will do great signs as well. Not coming in God's power, but coming in Satan's power. Falling in line with the false prophet, who is the false Elijah. <clears throat> In verse 26 and 27. Um, then if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. So when we go into hiding, we're not to come out until we see Christ return with our own eyes. We're not to believe hearsay or second, you know, third party, second party testimony here. We're to see what our self says in verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east... 
and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So when Christ returns, you won't have to have someone tell you. You won't have to have someone say, hey, look, man, he's out here, because they're trying to get you to come out. Because you come out of God's protection, guess what? Now you're open and susceptible to being hurt by your enemy. You're out from under his umbrella, so to speak. And out under the reign of persecution. And so when he, when, the, when the when the Antichrist and anyone who's with them, or anyone who even says they're a Christian, maybe someone will come into the camp, they'll find the camp, and God's still going to protect us anyway. He'll come to some people and say, listen, man, he's out here. I know he's out here. Don't believe them. They're a false prophet. They're a false messenger. They are not of God. I don't care if I tell you that. Don't you believe it. Because Christ, when he comes, everyone will see. There'll be no mistaking it. You see lightning, you see it. There'll be no mistaking the coming of Christ. And then in verse 30, for wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Carcass, dead body. Well, there'll be lots of dead bodies in the end. And uh, let's, let's just go to Revelation 19 for a second here. Revelation 19. And we'll see what happens after Christ returns. We see in verse 11 through verse 16, Christ returns of Revelation 19. And then in Revelation 19 and verse 17, it says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. So the enemies of God, those who side with the Antichrist, you know, Christ is going to squash them like we squash an ant. They stand no chance. And, he's, and this angel is calling for all the birds. Now, the birds here, the word for birds here, uh, literally means all unclean birds. Okay? And so let's, let's go to Deuteronomy 14 for a second and see uh, what unclean birds are. Deuteronomy 14, verse 11. And that way we'll know exactly what birds we're talking about. And he's calling for all of these unclean birds. All of them. Okay? Now, we know that we, we, we see some, some vultures around here. Turkey vultures. And what do they like to eat? Dead stuff. Dead stuff. Yeah. Carcasses. Exactly what we see in Matthew 24, verse 28. And so, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 14, starting in verse 11, it says, All clean birds you may eat. But these you shall not eat. The eagle, oh, there it is. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, and the red kite. Now, don't ask me what the red kite is. I looked it up and I couldn't figure it out. Uh, the falcon and the kite after their kinds. Every raven after its kind. The ostrich, the short-eared owl, the seagull, and the hawks after their kinds. The little owl, the screech owl, the white owl, the jackdaw, the carrion vulture, the fisher owl, the stork, the heron after his kind, and the hoopy and the bat. That's it. Those are all the unclean birds. Now, some of these birds, now eagles, do they normally eat dead things? No, they eat live things normally. But guess what? Not on this day. 
not on this day. I've heard some say that this this couldn't be talking in uh, Matthew 24. Couldn't be talking about what I just read to you in Revelation 19 because eagles don't eat dead things. Uh, according to Revelation 19, all unclean animals will come. According to Deuteronomy 14, eagles are included in that. And so they're going to gather together. Can you imagine all those birds in the sky? Can you imagine a stork or an ostrich eating dead bodies? Yeah. They're all going to come, and they're all going to feed on the flesh of these men who've risen up. They've taken the mark of the beast. They've risen up against God, risen up against Christ, and they've rejected authority, and they have Antichrist as their God. They worship him as their God, and they're going to see how puny their God is on that day. They'll see how puny he is on that day. And so all these birds will come, and they will feast on the flesh of men. And this happens, of course, after Christ returns, right after he returns, and right after he has defeated the Antichrist and his army. And if you want to know more about exactly what happens, you can go to Zechariah 14 and see that their flesh dissolves, their eyes dissolve in their socket, their tongues dissolve in their mouths. So it's a pretty easy meal for these eagles. I mean, often you see an eagle swoop down and get some fish, bring it back to the nest, and they start picking it apart and give it to their, their, you know, their offspring, Just give it to them. But this, you're gonna have to be picking apart at, you know, tough skin. It's gonna be really gooey. It's gonna be really easy to eat. It ain't gonna be any hard skin to eat on. And so, you'll see these, uh, things come. And so, where you see the carcasses, there the eagles will be gathered. There, all of the birds, of the, all the unclean birds, according to Revelation 19, will be gathered together to feed on the flesh of men. After we've gone through all this, let's let's make a little uh, application. Of course, we need to be watchful. Verse 25, probably the most important verse in this whole thing, after you've understood what it means. See, I have told you beforehand. You've been told beforehand. You've been told. You have the information. Now you're required to obey it. And if you don't obey it, it'll be to your own detriment. It'll be to your own detriment. So see, now I have told you beforehand. Jesus is telling us beforehand. I'm explaining to you beforehand. Daniel told us beforehand. John told us beforehand. Matthew told us beforehand. They're all telling us beforehand. So we need to use this information properly and allow God to uh, prepare us for this, which is going to happen. All right, so hopefully it's it's the history lesson there of Hanukkah. I know that was kind of uh, difficult to get through that whole thing. It may have bored you a little bit, but... Uh, Hopefully it helped you understand uh, why they would have understood what Jesus was referring to and how we can understand what he's referring to by looking at history because that's what they would have known about, about Hanukkah and what we're to do and what we're to consider knowing that we could possibly be one of these last groups and what we should consider because of these things. Okay, let's open the floor up to uh, questions. Objections or things that people want to add to what's been said. Or Tracy? Yeah, I just wanted to go back to where it said in Luke, uh, <coughs> talking about uh, remembering Lot's wife mm-hmm. and uh, the days of Lot, uh, basically uh, referring to the uh, Exodus. Uh, I believe, just like you do, it's an Exodus from society right. uh, to the wilderness and all that. Uh, I just wanted to add something, is I believe that uh, bringing up the, the mind picture of what happened with Lot and his wife, uh, they were led out of the city by angels. angels. Yeah. So it's my theory 
that at that time, whenever we're supposed to be told to go out to the wilderness, that as Christians, we're all going to be individually being led by an angel. But if we turn back, and then we turn, we look to see if the angel's there, the angel's going to be gone. And and that's my theory, is I think that's how we're going to miss out, miss the boat, is if you go back to your house, or say say we're out preaching on campus, and it happens... You know, you're not allowed to go back to get your wife or your children or anything. You have to leave from where you're at. Right. You know, and yep. uh, you just have to have faith that uh, those in our household are Christians, that they're going to get the same sure. uh, notice. And then those that aren't, uh, we just have to love God more than our own families and yeah. just go where the Lord leads us to go. So that's kind of like my theory on that because Jesus is bringing to our mind about Lot and his wife and fleeing Sodom. Uh, that that's that's kind of the basis for my theory on that. And plus, there's also a lot of Christians today who no longer watch television. They no longer get on the internet. They no longer connected to the outside world at all. Right. Uh, how are they going to be told? Right. So I believe it's a supernatural sign sure. that we're going to be told, and not everyone's going to be able to look on the internet and say, "Look, there's a, a somebody in the temple in Jerusalem claiming to be God." Yeah, I don't think the internet's going to have anything to do with it. Right. I really don't. I don't know exactly how we're going to be led. It could be an angel. It could be God, just God speaking to our heart. Um, could be one of the last things that the two witnesses say before they're killed. Um, but you know, it, it's possible. I mean, I hadn't thought about that, including what happened with Lot and his wife with that. Another thing you can include what happened with Noah, uh, who shut the door behind him. God did. So when God brings us to an ark of, ark of safety, he shuts the door behind us. Now, no, if he wanted to, his family, they could have jumped out of the boat, couldn't they? It would be very foolish. And so I think people will be able to leave the place of safety as well if they want to. And that's one of the reasons why people will come to them and say, Look, there he is over there. Come out here. Look at all these signs and wonders. You've got to be of God. You've got to drag him out of this place of safety. The other thing I wanted to offer is a point of comfort. Uh, to those of us who have families, and I know the issue of whether or not uh, families should have children anymore. Uh, none of these things are going to come to pass until the temple is built in Jerusalem. Yeah. So as of right now, there's no temple in Jerusalem. Sure. So really, I just don't, unless the Lord, like you said, is specifically telling you to stop having children, unless the Lord is specifically saying that, I would say that there's no reason at this point to stop having children. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, once the the temple is built, and the two the two witnesses are starting to prophesy, now you got three and a half years. Well, now that would be wise to stop having children then. Mm-hmm. That way, when it's come time to flee into the wilderness, mm-hmm. you won't have a three year old or you know a, a, a baby or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. your, your children would be three years old or older, right. and it'd be a lot easier to uh, flee into the wilderness at that point. Right. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. We never know how how quickly it's going to come. I mean, it could be. You know, within 10 years, for all we know. I, mean, I don't think it is, but if it was, and we keep on having children, we're going to have a four, five, six year old. It becomes difficult to. I mean, Carrie Ann runs pretty fast, but she can't run as fast as I can. So. But, uh, yeah, I agree with you, brother. That's good. And, and, this, and what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 is for anyone who's being persecuted at any time. Not just for the end days persecution. Because he was talking to people at that point in time who were under great distress. And so we're obviously not living in a country where we're being persecuted to that extent. But if persecution were to begin here to that extent, 
then there is once again be a reason before the temple is built, before the three last three and a half years come, there's a reason to think about these things. Because it would he would save you some trouble in the flesh. And so I, I don't want us to picture that things won't be bad for us here in America before the last three and a half years. They will get bad. I believe they will. It's not gonna be we're gonna be going around just like we are now. I don't think we're going to be preaching at college campuses and have freedom and First Amendment rights and going to court cases and winning them still. I think it's going to get worse. And then the last three and a half years, according to Matthew 24, is called the Great Tribulation, Great Pressure. But we saw in Matthew 24 at the beginning that the first three and a half years is called Tribulation. So there's pressure there. But the last three and a half years is the Great Pressure because the Antichrist is now persecuting everyone. Uh, But we do know the Antichrist spirit is in the world still persecuting Christians. So, you know, if someone was living in a Muslim country where there's persecution all around them, at this point I'd, I'd give them the same thing I just gave us, 1 Corinthians 7, and these issues to think about these things, consider these things, before they just assume, okay, yeah, God wants me to be married and God wants me to have children and so on and so forth, to really think about these things. And so, for the generation who are here, the younger children here, they might, they might have to consider not getting married. They may be a generation that has to consider those things because of this. So. Well, I was just going to ask a question about your theory uh, in that. So, family members that are not saved would just leave them. Well, I would say that the only ones who are going to be supernaturally led into the wilderness would be Christians. So, if you have family members who are not yet Christians, and say you're out away from your family, and you're thinking, oh, uh, such and such, I don't think he's a Christian, and you go back to get him, now you're not going out to the wilderness either. So well, I would suppose if I was out, I'd suppose I was out, uh, that my wife would leave my children where the world is going to go. Right. So they're not saved yet, but they're still children. Do you let them come with us? Of course. Oh, yeah, of course. course. You, you wouldn't say don't come with you. Yeah. I was saying there might be a situation like, say, what happens if, you know, uh, Nita's putting clothes up on the line outside. And the children are in the house and some are out playing and then the sign comes she's got to go right, right from where she's at and so do all the children right from where they're at and as the Lord leads them, as the Lord leads them and if one of them's not a Christian and playing in their bedroom and find out where did everybody go they're all gone no there's people walked away no. right so that situation could arise. Maybe piles of unfolded clothes. Right. That's why I say you have to decide whether or not you love God more or love your family more. That's the decision some people are going to have to make. They're going to get to sign, oh, i got to go. But what about my family? What about those who are, who are not going to be able to go? This is God to get your family and go. That's, that's where I'm going I'm just saying if you're not all in the same place whenever it happens you're all in different places that that, that situation <laughs> could play out it, it seems to imply not taking uh, lesser things you know going going and going to feel back to your clothes or if you're on the in, 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 in Israel, they have the rooftops, so they, they, they sweep the tops of the roof and hang out on the tops of the roof. So obviously, it says not, if you're on the rooftop, not go down uh, to take anything out of your house. So you would definitely go down and take your family out. Right. You said so I think it's talking about more trivial things. Yeah. You know, don't I, go and get your books, and don't go and get your 
pack your bags and yes. get a bunch of just, you know, cameras right. and you know whatever. But I also, I also think it means go from where you're at. Right. Yeah. But I mean specifically what the text is right. saying here. Right. It's speaking about less right. thing. It's not saying don't go down and take your, your don't take your family out. Yeah, obviously, if you're if you're with your family, you would take your family with you. Right. I'm just saying if you're not with your family, right. you wouldn't get in your car drive home. Unless the Lord told you to do that. I just don't. I don't. I don't think he would. But it doesn't specifically say not. It isn't to do specific that. not to. Yeah. It just says. I think it's basically saying leave it where you're at. Yeah, it's it's definitely open. I mean, if you look at the language there, uh, let him who's on the house stop not go in take anything out of his house. Let him who's in the field not go back to get his clothes. Um, so I mean, there's an open possibility there that you can go back to get your children and wife. I don't know. It's it's you have to just let the Lord lead you, and I think I think as the years as time goes by, we may get more information. As obviously at, at the last time when this happens, we will have the right information by then. The reason why I say it's my theory because it's mainly by implication, not by explicit teaching. So I'm just trying to let everybody know on the surface yeah. that I have nothing solid to base it on. I just think it's most likely. I think it's going to turn out that way. That's why it's best for each of us to be ready. Yes. Yes. So one person isn't the one that's having to rally everybody else. You know, we're all being sensitive to these things. We're all watching. We're all praying, and we're all going to be in tune with the Spirit. Yep. And so I don't have to be in tune for everybody else necessarily because everyone else is out of tune. Yeah. So I think that's. And I I think this is this is most likely at least twenty to twenty five years out. So uh, let's face it, all the children that are here now will be grown ups. So. If all of us were to stop having children right now, we wouldn't have any children in our households. Okay. Well, they could, yeah, but they won't be children. They'll be adults. So there's no there's no age of accountability thing to be concerned about about whether they're believers or not. If they're unbelievers, they're unbelievers. So the thing I want to point out about the uh, departure of the wilderness is I believe, like you do, that all Christians are going to be notified wherever they're at. But I don't believe all Christians are going to have the proper teaching to know what to do. Yeah. That's true. Uh, so uh, there is that other group of uh, uh, Christians who stay uh, in society and become martyrs for the faith. Yeah. Uh, that that uh, resist unto death against the mark of the beast. Right. Uh, so there is that group of Christians that are, are going to still be here. I think it's right. going to be people who are uh, untaught, unprepared, or <clears throat> like I said, the other the other group would be you know people who uh, because they have the cares of this world more than the cares of God, they would turn away, miss their opportunity just to be with their family and protect them. Yeah. You know, there's that uh, uh, possibility also, but I, I think everyone's going to be told, every Christian's going to be told. Okay. And also, I mean, verse 14 of Matthew 24 says that the gospel is preached in all the world. And so there's, there's a possibility that there's some of the people who don't go to the place of safety are can, can continue to preach where they are to people who have not taken it. Because the market of the beast is just now going to be put forth to get people to take it, the midpoint. And so there's still going to be people out there. It's not going to happen overnight. People are going to elevate the mark of the beast. There's still going to be people out there who can be preached to and witnessed to, and not until the gospel preached everywhere the end will come. And so uh, I, I agree there's going to be a lot of people who are unprepared, who are believing false doctrine, um, who are going to think, well, I'm going to be out of here before all the bad stuff happens. And that alone might make them turn away from the faith because they believe the lie. And it didn't happen, and therefore they basically stopped believing everything. Because a lot of people, that's like a big thing for them, this preacher rapture stuff. It's a big thing. It's like one of the major doctrines. They 
They read all the Left Behind books. They watch Hal Lindsey. They watch uh, what's that other guy who's on? Uh, on Tim LaHaye, but the, the guy with the white hair knows all the Bible verses. Yeah, no, not Hagee. Van Impey. Yeah, Van Impey, Jack Van Impey. I mean, he he knows a lot. So these people are being fooled by these big things, especially here in America. They're being fooled by this stuff. Uh, and it's a big, it's like the most important doctrine they have. And so a lot of people are going to turn away from the faith because it won't happen. It won't happen. Yeah. I was going to say something about what you said. You, I don't know if you're concerned about unbelieving, you know, if you have an unbelieving family. But if you could take them with you, it seems that they could be even saved during that time. Yeah. Even though mm-hmm. yeah. you know, they could be convinced. It can sure. Be and I don't know if this applies to, to what it says. It says they that will be wise shall shine as brightness of the permanent, and they shall turn many to righteousness in the stars of heaven. So it seems that even in even in those times, that could be a witness. You know, if they do come, if you encourage them to come, it would be, you know, they're there. There'll definitely still be people getting saved during the last three and a half years. Mm-hmm. Whether, let's just take, for example, people continue to preach the last three and a half years, and someone gets saved, let's say, in modern-day Iran. Okay? The uh, question becomes, is God going to lead that person to the wilderness separately? Yeah. Have he already led everyone else to the wilderness? Or is he going to be left to be persecuted. I have no idea. I don't know the answer to that. Um, but yeah, I, I, if you have, if I have someone who's an unbeliever who's like a Christian outwardly only, or maybe they're a bit of a hypocrite and no one knows they're only a Christian outwardly only, um, I would take them with me. And if they're willing to go, if they're willing to go. And even after they get there, they, they can still leave if they want to. Because let's face it, um, I've been listening to the song by Keith Green about turning back to Egypt. And he talks about them complaining about the manna. And uh, I don't think we're going to have delicacies provided for us. or We're not going to have you know ribeye and uh, biscuits and gravy and uh, you know fresh milk from the cow. What's that? Tacos. Yeah. We're not, we're not going to have all our favorite foods there. And so, if someone isn't a Christian, they they might rather go back to the world, take the mark of the beast, and live their life comfortably for the last three and a half years. But they may not believe. They may think you're crazy. You're the crazy bunch. You're you're, you're the minority. Everyone else is really doing the right thing. I'm gonna go back to eating my ribeye and back to eating my steak and potatoes. Back to eating, or maybe it's a really nice fresh salad with lots of good fresh dressing, organic dressing on it. You know, whatever it may be. Uh, we're not going to have these delicacies. We, you know, we're not going to have a, a nice house with air conditioning. We might be living in caves. I think it's, it's, it's kind of cool in caves. It's kind of cool in caves. Yeah, you might be eating grubs. Might be eating locusts and honey. Uh, so, um, and I'm not saying, well, that's an interesting idea, practice now. I'm not saying you should do that, but I'm just simply telling you that if you pick an unbeliever with you, they might leave because they don't want to endure that, you know, little bit of, Discomfort they're going to have to endure for Jesus' name, whether or not they don't care about Jesus. You know? Hey, brother. I would say, even someone who is a believer, if they're too um, attached to all these uh, uh, comforts that we enjoy right now, yeah. uh, that they would be tempted to not go back and take the mark of the beast, but, well, if I just go back and maybe I can get a, a hamburger or something like that, something really good to eat. And, and maybe not get caught. Right. They would be tempted in that way to just go back and not get caught, 
and thinking that they would be okay, uh, that temptation is going to happen too. And, uh, possibly the, any non-Christians in the bunch might even uh, betray the whole group. Yeah. Uh, so just because we go out in the wilderness doesn't mean that uh, we're not going to be possibly persecuted uh, by the Antichrist directly. Uh, our group could be betrayed and end up in the hands of the Antichrist and all of us have to be required to give our lives on the dead. Uh, so that, that's still a possibility, I believe, even after you go in the wilderness. Well, I think Revelation makes it clear that they'll be protected and provided for time, times, and half a time. So that's three and a half years. Does that mean everyone? Everyone who's in that group, so who stays in, who stays in the place. Of, I don't think that if we're in a place where God's protecting us, that He's going to allow Satan to find out where we are and come get us. Now we could go out of that place of safety. But I think as long as we're in that place of safety, it's like the ark is, just like Lot was away from those cities, that we're protected uh, from from the enemy. And, and God will protect us. So you don't think there's a possibility of uh, Judas in the group? That would... There's a possibility of Judas in the group, but the people would have to leave the place of safety. Right. They're going to say, come out. They're yes. like they would be, be the one that say, come with me. That's I right. Found, I found Christ. Something. This prophet over here, man, he knows what he's talking about. He's got lots of miracles, signs, and wonders. I know it's true. And so I think that if, as long as we're in the place of safety, we're protecting. And that's why in verse 17 of Revelation 12, he says, the dragon was enraged with the woman because she got away. And went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so as long as we go to the place of safety and we stay in that place of safety, I think we're good to go. As long as Noah and his family stayed in the ark, they were good to go. If they go out of the ark, I mean, if someone's out in the water saying, come on, man, it's fun out here. We're going for a swim. And Noah's son Shem said, oh, it looks like fun to me. It's kind of hot and stinky in this ark with all these you know, animal dung around and stuff like that. I'm going to go take a swim in the water. Guess what? He ain't getting back in. Because he wants to, you know, he wants to appease his flesh a little bit. You know, so I think as long as we're in the place of safety, we're good to go. But there will be betrayers, obviously. I think, I think, I think verse 10 of Matthew 24 talks about that. Hate one another, betraying one another. Um, and so, and there will be people who try to get us to come out of safety according to verse 26 of Matthew 24. He's a different beast. He's a different beast. Yeah. Revelation thirteen one is the is the Antichrist. Well, you read, read all down from verse 11 to verse 17. It says, And so another beast com- coming up out of the earth, and the earth there could just be land, and we think it's possibly Israel. And he had two horns like a lamb, and spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and caused the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. Performs great signs that even he makes fire come down from heaven on the, on the earth in the sight of the men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sign, sight of the beast. That's not about the first beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. That's the Antichrist. 
He was granted to give breath to the image of the beast. This is the, the, the image of the beast now. Not the actual beast himself, the Antichrist, but the image of the Antichrist. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He caused all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand and on their foreheads. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of, or the name of the beast or the number of his name. That's the first beast, once again. So here is wisdom. Let us let he who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, the first beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. And so just like a true prophet will point to Christ, the true Messiah, the false prophet will point to the false Messiah, the Antichrist, the first beast. So like the same way John the Baptist did. Yep. Jesus. Forerunner. And he came with the spirit and power of Elijah. And we know one of the two witnesses, according to Malachi 4, will be Elijah, and they will preach about Jesus Christ, the original Messiah, the only Messiah. Oh, it doesn't say he came after him. He's just, he just telling you that he saw him come up out of the earth. He's not telling you when he saw that. The Revelation uh, has a lot of flashbacks, so to speak. It yeah. goes back and details the same time period. Yes, it does. Something else I would say, uh, you know, uh, maybe kind of like a point of you know, fun, you know, not something to take too seriously, but might not be a good idea, or might not be a bad idea to go out camping with your family every now and then kind of rough it for a little bit. You know, you know, kind of get used to living outside of the house. It might not be a bad idea to do that. Yeah. Uh, it might be good to uh, maybe train. Hey, it's not so bad living out in the wilderness or whatever. And yeah. Get used to it a little bit. Yeah. And obviously, within boundaries, you don't want to take your family and live with the coyotes and the, and the cougars. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know. That, that's in the millennial kingdom. Right. So, because we're not going to have the express protection of God until... Right. That last 12, 60 day period. So, yeah. uh, you shouldn't tempt God in that regard. But going to a, a park and, and camping out, out in a park, like in a tent or something, I think yeah. would be probably a pretty good thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think probably American Christians will be at the greatest disadvantage when it comes to living in the wilderness because uh, all these other Christians around the world who endure persecution are living in third world countries and second world countries, it's going to be a lot easier for them to deal with this situation physically speaking materially speaking than, than it is for us that's for sure but Sean do you have anything you want to say? no no okay just wanted to make sure alright anyone else? is that you want to share with the row? Um, just the 24 22 huh? unless those days were shortened Right. 
but um, do you think that uh, that this would apply here? Those days are going to be shortened. You're not going to be able to get the countdown the exact day of this coming. Now, the word shortened there is an aorist tense in the Greek, which is something that's already been determined. So it's not something that's going to be determined in the future. It's already been determined. Aorist is past tense. So uh, God's already determined to shorten those days because he knows how wicked devil's going to be against his elect. Okay. And if he had not shortened those days, there wouldn't be much left to come back to. Okay. okay. That's what I believe it's saying. But, you know, this whole issue of uh, not knowing the day or the hour, we got, maybe we'll get to it next week, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about that some more. Um, but I, I, uh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't say they can't be they can't be deceived. Uh, doesn't say that they can't be deceived. And uh, but it's okay. Um, but if if this even if this was saying that that they they couldn't be deceived, uh, <clears throat> the question is who who which elect is it talking about here? It's talking about those who will persevere to the end, or is it saying that? People who were once part of the elect can ne- no, never uh, cease to be part of the elect, never cease to lose their salvation, or never be deceived. Um, if we couldn't be deceived, then we have a problem with uh, verse 11 of Matthew 24, same chapter, that many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. In the context there is many Christians, uh, what we see here in verses uh, 5 through 14. And so, obviously, we can be deceived. And Calvinists, unless they're going to say that only Calvinists are Christians, they have to admit the elect can be deceived because they have to admit that all Arminians are deceived to some degree. And that anyone who's not a Calvinist is deceived to some degree because they're not Calvinists. And so they don't have all... And even among Calvinists, there's disagreements. And so some of them must be deceived, too. And so, it's not... I don't think it's saying... The elect can't be deceived. But if I were even to buy that for a second, I can refute that idea from that verse and from the rest of that chapter. And so, yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Anybody else?